before you guys are seated uh, this morning, I would like for us to read the scriptures together. How many of you are grateful for the band and uh, leading us? Uh, before you're seated, uh, you, guys can, you guys can stay standing. I want us to read the scriptures together uh, from uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. So we're going to talk about uh, the fact that we belong to uh, the church and we belong to one another. And this passage teaches us to love one another. So we put it on the screen. Uh, and I want to read from verse 11 down to verse 18. And uh, what we do at our church is uh, after uh, someone reads the Bible, they, they say this is God's word. And uh, the people say, thanks be to God. And so I'm going to see if you can remember to do that, all right, uh, after I read it. So let's read it together. I'll read it out loud, and you can just follow along, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And this is God's word. Right, very good, very good. You may be seated. <clears throat> Top of the morning to all of you. Uh, as we think about this subject, uh, Josh introduced you to my wife, Kimberly. We just celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. Um, been married for uh, 15 happy years. And I proposed to my wife at Arlington Cemetery uh, several years ago. It's a long story, but yeah, I proposed at a cemetery uh, in Washington, D.C. We met at youth camp in 2002. Uh, she was not a camper. Uh, she's actually older than me. Um, but we met at youth camp. She was a camp director. I was the camp pastor. And uh, I, I like to say she's still the director. I'm still the pastor. Um, and she is from the D.C. area. And our, our first uh, date was uh, at Arlington Cemetery as she was showing me the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and, and all of these things about American history, taking me on a tour of the city. Uh, and so uh, I finally uh, got enough money to buy an engagement ring, uh, sold my guitar uh, and all my worldly goods to buy uh, an engagement ring. And uh, finally, uh, and accompanied her on a, on a field trip to DC with her, her class. And uh, when the field trip was over, me and her went away and I took her to uh, right beside this, this old house that's overlooking the Washington Monument and the Capitol. And uh, I said, baby, as we're looking at all these tombs, um, she's from a military family, and so it's a special place for her. Um, I said, you know, all these guys and, and gals, they, they all died for a worthy cause, didn't they? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, I want you to know that, that I'm willing to lay down my life for you also, uh, a worthy cause. And, and she said, oh. And, um, and I said, uh, what, what's our favorite verse? And she said, Psalm 34, 3. Oh, come and magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And I said, uh, will you come and exalt the Lord with me in marriage? And I had this ring that was burning a hole in my pocket. And uh, she had this little Jesus ring right here. And, and I took it off. He's still number one, but I took it off. And, and I put on this, this diamond and um, her head went right here, and then she proceeded to snot all over my, my shirt. Uh, 
And uh, we, we floated down this hill like a, like a leaf on a river of romance, uh, just anticipating uh, being married together. She was the first of uh, three uh, other uh, sisters to, to get married, and so we had this great celebration. Now, why, why choose a cemetery to, uh, to make a proposal? Well, if you know anything about love in the New Testament, love is always tied to death. Love is related to the cross when it comes to love. So, for, for example, Ephesians chapter 5 says that a husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's how we're to love. We're to, we're to lay down our lives for our, our bride. And the same is true when it comes to love within the church. As John says here in the text we just read, that just as Jesus laid down his life for us, we are to lay down our lives for the brothers, for one another. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to think about this. What does it look like to practice real Christian love? within your youth group, uh, within your church. Uh, you're having a great opportunity, by the way, to live this sermon out this weekend, staying at each other's houses and so on. You're around each other all the time, right? And so how are you doing at this? Let's talk about this. I wanna give you six truths about what I'm gonna call family love. We're talking about the gospel family, the church family. Six truths on family love, and prayerfully, We'll go out of here loving the way Jesus has loved us, okay? So number one, family love should mark Christ's people. It should mark Christ's people. Notice what John says in verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the, the beginning, that you should love one another. So John is saying, I'm not writing anything new. This is what you guys have heard from the beginning, namely the beginning of Christ's teaching, that you, you should love one another. John uses this little phrase in 1 John uh, some 10 times. He's not making up anything new. Though times are changing, the essential nature of Christianity is unchanging. It never will change. Christ has loved us. Christ has called us to love one another. He says, guys, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, where exactly did Jesus first teach this to his disciples? If this were Bible trivia, I would love to, to hear if you could get the answer to that. The answer would be in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, our church is actually just preaching through the gospel of John, and I just finished this chapter last week, or this section. John 13 is the famous passage where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Now, how many of you like feet? Yeah, no. He, he's, he's eating dinner with Judas, even though he knew Judas would betray him. How many of you would have eaten dinner with Judas? No. Maybe to take a knife and do something to that guy, right? Maybe to put something in his falafel just for kicks. <clears throat> but he ate with Judas. He's even loving his enemies in this, in this famous text. And then he washes their feet. Even, can you, you imagine the smell of these feet, of these disciples? Like feet are proof that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what I think. Even guys with showers and fast actins and actin, their feet stink, right? But Jesus here is giving them an example of what he's going to do at the cross in cleansing them, what he's going to do uh, as a servant in humbling himself, and what he calls us to do is to wash feet, metaphorically speaking. We are to serve one another. And after Jesus gets finished with that, that example of service, he says in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I've loved you. So this is very basic Christianity, students, but we're just going to underline it this morning. This is an essential part of being a Christian, is that you love the people of God. You love one another. 
Jesus says in John 13, verse 35, in the very next verse, by this, all people will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Like Jesus doesn't say, here's how they're gonna know you're my disciples if you have a fish on the back of your car, right? If, if you've been to seminary, if you've got a degree. No, here's how people are gonna know that you're my disciples. Not even that you have really good arguments for evidences of, of the existence of God. People are gonna know you're Christians by how you love one another. And, and, and it's really sad that many Christian communities are not known for this. They're actually known for division and hostility and argument. And Jesus says, hey guys, this is what it's all about. This is an essential aspect of being a Christian. This is more essential than essential oils, okay? <laughs> We're just talking about essential oils backstage. I love essential oils, okay? I, sometimes I smell like a mosquito repellent, my, my daughter says, right? Essential oil is really not essential. It's a nice oil. It's a little bit, okay, over the top with the name. It's not essential. You can get by without it. But you cannot get by without this when it comes to your discipleship. So the question posed to you this morning is, are you known for this? Are you known for this kind of love? Christian love, family love should mark Christ's people. Number two, notice what is said in the text. Family love is difficult because of the evil one. You say, man, I find it really hard to love some people. How many of you have at least one relational conflict in your life, okay? How many of you are sitting next to that person? Anybody wanna admit that? And you say, man, <laughs> I'll give you a minute to work it out. <laughs> I reminded of the, of the cartoon uh, with uh, Linus when he says, uh, I love humanity, it's just people I can't stand, right? Like, it, it's one thing to have this idea of loving each other, it's another thing to actually do it. Like, it's one thing, many people, for example, love the idea of the church, but they don't know anybody in a real church. They don't really serve anyone in a church. And so the, the reason that it's so challenging is that it's spiritual warfare. Love is war. It's war. Notice what, what John says here. We should not be like Cain. That's a guy back in Genesis 4. You may know this story. Right after sin enters the world, sin not only disrupts our relationship to God, but it also disrupts our relationship to people. That's what sin does. And so Cain murders his brother, as John says here, he was of the evil one, murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So first thing to get here from this verse is there is an evil one. And he, he hates anything you're gonna do for Christ. My son Joshua is now 14 and, and it was about time that they were gonna have the talk in middle school. I don't know if you guys have had that talk before in school. And so I did this thing with my sons right before they were about to have the talk in school. I would go have the talk first with them. So I, I told both of my sons, I said, pick any restaurant you want to go to and we're going to go have the talk. And so James picked Starbucks. And <laughs> when it was Joshua's turn, he picked the Golden Corral. You know, I offered him everything, Ruth, Chris, any nice steakhouse. He wanted to go to Golden Corral. So we went and got some fried chicken and fried milk and, and fried potatoes. And um, he loves the Golden Corral. And, um, and so we're at the Golden Corral having the talk. And I began to talk to him about all the things that I'm not going to talk to you about in this moment. But the, but the last thing that I told him was, here's what I want you to really know, Joshua. There is an evil one. And he is after you. 
He's after your purity, he's after your heart. And you just have to realize this, students. There is spiritual warfare involved in, in, in your discipleship. And when it comes to relationships, the evil one will use absolutely anything to separate Christians. He will use racism, he will use classism, he will use, I go to public school, I go to home school, I go to private school. What does the evil one wanna do? He wants to build up walls within the church. But Jesus Christ has abolished the walls. He has destroyed the hostility. And what the Christian community should be is like a big pot of gumbo. You guys know what gumbo is, right? Like it's a bunch of stuff thrown in and it is just good. It's a lot of diversity wrapped up into this or, or put into this big pot, but the evil one hates it. And so if you have a relational conflict, my challenge to you today is to go make it right. Ephesians 4 says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. We have to, we have to maintain it, okay? Jesus has created it by his death on the cross. He, he is the basis for our unity. We have to maintain it. And so Christian love is difficult because there is an evil one. Now notice thirdly here that family love, John says, attracts some people, but it also angers other people. That is the outside world. So the outside world, when they see Christian love, like Jesus says in John 13, some people are drawn to Christianity. They say, man, look how these people love each other. But other people will see your love for one another and it will actually anger them. Notice what John says here. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now this is just fascinating at one level because John is saying, hey guys, love each other. Love one another, be sacrificial, be generous. And oh, by the way, when you do this, people are gonna hate you. That makes no sense on one level, does it? Like, hey man, why do you hate me? Because you guys love each other. But notice, John isn't new in saying this. John is just stealing Jesus' sermon. You know, not stealing not in a sinful way. He's, I should say, echoing Jesus. This is what Jesus taught in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know it hated me first. Jesus, why does people hate you? What did you do for them? I died for them. And they hate me. See, here's the thing about living out your Christian faith. You've got to come to grips with how you're gonna to relate to the world. If all you wanna do is be liked, you're not gonna be a very, very good Christian. You're gonna have opposition for being obedient to Jesus. Paul says, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And one of the things that Jesus is doing in, in John 13 to 15 is he's preparing his disciples for his departure and how they are to relate to the world. And so, step one, how do you relate to the world? Don't be surprised when people hate you. Jesus says, they hated me, you're not above me, and they hated me, right? Like a baseball player shouldn't say, I can't believe I got hit by the ball. You're playing baseball, pal. A NASCAR driver shouldn't get surprised that he gets in a wreck. He's going fast. And a Christian should never be surprised that people hate us. Now, if your whole goal right now as a teenager is to be cool, you're missing it. Right? Listen, cool wins high school. Faithful to Jesus and the church wins life. Win life, students. 
cool is for a moment. You're gonna, one day you're going to be on Facebook or some other form of social media, and you're going to look at all those kids who used to be cool, and you're going to say, they're no longer cool. I don't know what I was thinking, trying to compete with them and trying to get their approval, okay? There's something far greater than being liked, being cool, and I'm not saying you go out and be a jerk. You need to be known for love, actually. But what I'm saying is you should expect hatred. Be faithful to Jesus. Be faithful to your church. The second thing that you should know about the world, Jesus says in John 17, he says, I'm not asking that, Father, you take them out of the world, but that you sanctify them in your truth. So if people aren't going to like us, the, the point is not let's all go run from people and let's all go build this little Christian commune and all live with each other. No, we are to live our faith in the world, but we are to be sanctified by the truth. And so... Here's how you relate to the world. Number one, don't be surprised that I hate you. Number two, get in the word. Let the word sanctify you. Be different. This is how you're salt in the, in the world. If we are just like the world, we never have anything to offer to the world. We are to be unique. We are to be different. We're to be different in how we care for each other. We're to be different in our worldview. So get in the word. Now, you may be here this weekend and you may never have have had any discipline of reading the scriptures. I just want to encourage you. Maybe the, the, the best thing you can walk away from this 180 weekend is a commitment that every day you're going to read the scriptures. I do the same thing every morning. I read five Psalms every morning and one proverb. That gets me through the Psalms 12 times a year. Proverbs 12 times a year. And I do this for my own soul. I don't wake up always happy in the Lord. You know, like a little cheerleader with spirit fingers. And sometimes I'm just, I just need coffee, okay? Uh, and if I can find my pants and find my coffee, it's a good day so far. And, and once I get pants and coffee, it's, I need a Bible. And I need, I need to sing with the Psalms. I need to read the Proverbs. And then I have a, a reading plan where I just read through the Bible that just takes me through the Bible. Get some kind of plan, any kind of plan. Just get a plan and get in the Word. Let the Word sanctify you. Now, when I became a Christian, which was in college, I didn't know anything about the Bible at all. And I just want you to not feel embarrassed by that. Go ahead and ask what you think are dumb questions. Right? I remember, I got saved when I was a sophomore in college. And I remember we started a Bible study on our baseball team. <clears throat> and uh, they were, they, it, I, was, I was so out of it, man. They were like, hey, let's all share our favorite verse. Hey, Tony, what's your favorite verse? I don't have any verses, man. Um, like, I like the maps. They're fantastic. Uh, look at those things. <laughs> I even had, by the way, a reading problem growing up. I was in special reading as a kid. I failed the reading part of the ACT. I was getting tutored in college in reading. And I became a Christian, and now everybody said, hey, pal, you got to read the Bible. I'm like, is there another option? <laughs> right? Do you have some videos I can watch? Um, no, you need to read. You need to read. And I began to read. And they'd be like, hey, turn to Peter. And I was like, who's Peter? Are you Peter? Like, no, that's a book of the Bible. I'm like, oh, oh, hey, Peter, where's he at? And over time, one year, two years, the Lord began to change my capacity to re re read, retain information. And, and I just want to encourage you with that. How is it that we relate to the world as God's people? Don't be surprised that people hate you. You're not going out to create enemies. But just don't be surprised, right? And be sanctified in the truth. Number four, John says here that family love, it's very important, is a sign of genuine conversion. 
Notice how he says here that we know that we pass from death to life in that we've loved the brothers. Brothers here, by the way, is brothers and sisters. This is not just a, a manhood talk, okay? This is, this is family love. This is family language that, that John is using. We know we've passed from death to life in that we love the brothers. Now, John uses this word know in 1 John about 40 times. He really wants the believers to know that they, they belong to Jesus. He uses like four tests to, to analyze your, 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 yourself, to examine yourself, like a truth test. You have to believe certain things about Jesus. A righteousness test, that is that you're, you're practicing righteousness, as John says. A spiritual test in that the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. And then there's this relational test. One sign of genuine conversion is that you love your brothers and sisters. This is how we know, he says, that we have passed out of death into life. That's, a, that's an important phrase that Jesus also uses in John's gospel, passing from death to life. Has that happened in your life? Now, I didn't know what I wanted to do in my, my life when I was a kid. I remember I wanted to be the Fonzie. He was really cool when I was a kid, and then I wanted to be a professional wrestler, and then I wanted to be a rap star. And every Friday in art, I would rap. Uh, and uh, my, I convinced my teacher that rap was art. So my boy Danny would flow and I would go. And every, every Friday, we had this little thing going. Um, <clears throat> but I was in Kentucky and I had the wrong audience. They couldn't listen that fast. And so the, the, only, the only thing that was really constant in my life was, was sports. And so I had a, a full uh, scholarship to play baseball. And when I went to college, all I wanted to do was party and play baseball. And I did both of them with great passion. I had a 1.9 GPA my freshman year college. I almost dropped out of school. My mom talked me into staying. And God put a Christian on my team. I was a shortstop. He was a second baseman. His name was Stephen. And Stephen would witness to everybody, including the opposing team sometimes when they would get to second base. He would witness to them. I think they would go for third sometimes just so they didn't have to hear his sermon. Um, and Stephen would come to my door on Sunday morning. He would bang on my door and knock on my door and, and wake me up. And I would get out of the bed, and he would like almost literally drag me to a church. And we'd sit up on one of these balconies, and I remember he would, he would sit there and he would take notes. And I was just fascinated that you could actually follow a pastor, that you would actually enjoy that. And he had this massive Bible. I later learned it was called a study Bible. Had all the answers in the bottom of it. And I was just looking at that thing, and I was like, wow, that's fantastic. And Stephen kept saying, man, this, I want you to know what the Lord can do with your life, Tony. And he would just on and on and on and on. And I didn't want to hear any, any of it. And then as a sophomore, I went to an FCA service. And the Lord had been working in my heart. And I heard the gospel. Stephen came over to me and he said, Tony, you want to, you, you want to give your life to Christ? I said, yeah, man, I don't know what, what that involves really but I do, and, and we got down and we prayed, and I surrendered my life to Christ. I became a, a new Christian. I became, in a semester, the campus outreach leader. The Lord had so radically changed my heart. I had passed from death to life. The last thing I ever imagined I would be doing is a pastor. Sometimes when I'm on an airplane, I'll meet guys and they'll say, so what do you do, pal? And I'm like, why don't you guess? And they're like, I bet you own a tattoo parlor. No, I bet you own a Harley shop. No, that'd be cool though. You look like a rocker. You, you look like on and on. I get all kinds of stuff. And then when I get to tell them I'm a pastor, 
And they got that look on their face. I'm like, believe me, pal, I'm more surprised than you are, right? <laughs> like, wh- how did this happen? Here's how this happened. I passed from death to life. And that's what's happened to you. You say, how do I know if I'm alive? It's that you, you, you were growing. You, you have affections for Jesus. You're spiritually alive. You're not dead. You're alive. And there are only two categories, by the way. And one of the signs that you've passed from death to life is that you love one another. I remember Stephen had to tell me to go home. I would go to his apartment. I just wanted to hang out. I was writing songs. I was doing all kinds of stuff. I remember our baseball coach was telling me, Tony, you got to go to bed. You can't step to three or four in the morning writing praise songs. We got a doubleheader, son. What happened? Well, when you become a new creation in Christ Jesus, you get new loves. You get new loves. You love the scriptures. You love the gospel. You love mission. And you love one another. That's what John's saying to us. It's absolutely fundamental. You get a new family. Last night, you remember we were talking about adoption, that when you get adopted by God, you get new brothers and sisters? I remember Joshua's first Christmas. My son from Ethiopia, he had never seen Christmas before. We got him in like September. Halloween freaked him out. I see, he's dressed up and he's trigger treating. <laughs> and he's like, man, this is a great country. I go house to house, and they put candy in my bucket. And, and then it was, it was Christmas time, and he'd never experienced Christmas. And we go up to Kimberly's uh, family, and he looked at all these people, and he's like, Papa, are all these people our family? I'm like, yeah, man. Unfortunately, all of these people <laughs> are our family. <laughs> And you see my point, Not that, that's unfortunate, but that's reality too, isn't it? Um, but that when you get adopted, you also inherit a new family. Look, at these are your brothers and sisters. You may not look alike, you may have different interests. Right? Sometimes, in the grocery store, especially when the kids were young, James and Joshua would both call me Papa, and the clerk would say, like, are they brothers? Or she'd be wondering it, and I would say, yeah, yeah they're really brothers. Oh, you know what I mean. Oh, I know what you mean. And they're really brothers. How'd that happen? We passed from death to life. We love the brothers. You just gotta realize, students, how radical this is in the New Testament. Every time you see brothers and sisters, when you're thinking about Jews and Gentiles, who are Christians now, they did not hang out together. They did not play together. They hated each other. And now, in Christ Jesus, they were one. Like sometimes we just use brother or sister in the church when we forget people's names, don't we? I do that for a living as a pastor. They're like, oh, how you doing, brother? How you doing, brother? Or when I was in college, after I became a Christian, I would always ask girls out and they would turn me down at FCA. And their, their normal line was, I like you like a brother. And that was an easy way to say, get lost, pal. Uh, But when when John and the New Testament writers are using brother and sister, you need to realize that a miracle has happened to make make that a reality. We pass from death to life. Number five, let me move quickly. Family love is cross centered. John defines love for us, and this is so very important. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. By this we know love. Now here's something, students. When you go to college, or maybe this already happened in your school, teacher gets up with a whiteboard and says, okay, let's all define love. What on earth would people begin to write on that whiteboard? 
Everything under the sun, right? Like here's four, here are four, just four misconceptions about love, okay? Uh, some people believe, first of all, that love is tolerance. That if you love someone, then you can never correct them. You can never in any way have a truth that they need to hear and, and make a change in light of that truth. But, but we should never replace truthfulness with tolerance, right? Love is not, it's more than tolerance. And real truth is involved in real love. That Paul says we speak the truth in love. And so that's one misconception. Another, especially around your age, is love is always connected to lust. It's really about lust. Because if you can get with your girlfriend or boyfriend and you could say that magic word, I love you, then that is a license to break a lot of commandments. But love is not lust. Or love is everything. So because we use the word love for just about everything, man, I really love barbecue chicken. I love donuts, right? Everything's love, and so when you really want to make a statement about loving a, a spouse, for example, it doesn't mean that much. And so when the 13-year-old tells his 13-year-old girlfriend that he loves her, he doesn't. He loves her like a donut. That's what he loves her like. And, and he's, he's only saying it because his hot light is on. And he, he, there is no real love. It's lust and it's everything. It means absolutely nothing. I have this talk with my three daughters every five minutes, okay? Do not fall for these guys who say this because they don't understand covenantal love. They don't understand the cross-centered love. Now, the other one that I'll just throw out there is love is sentimentalism. That's kind of like Hallmark love, that it, love is just this feeling, right? But I want you to know, when the, when the professor says, let's define love, what is love? You can say, I have a verse. 1 John 3.16. By the way, it goes really well with John 3.16. But 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. It's not an abstract idea. Love is connected to the cross. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That's love. That means love is sacrificial. Love is about being merciful. It's about acting. It's about doing. Right? And think about this. Jesus changed these guys' lives. These were not loving guys. If you think John, who's writing about love, was this really romantic, sentimental, greeting card kind of guy, Remember what his nickname used to be? James and John, the sons of thunder. Why were they called that? Because at one time when the Samaritans, an ethnic group that they hated, would not believe in Jesus, what did James and John want to do to the Samaritans? He wanted to burn them up. That's the kind of guy that's writing about love. Jesus, they don't want to believe in you? Torch them. And now he's like, let's all love each other. What happened to this guy? The cross changed John. Because you know what Jesus does? Jesus takes angry, hate-filled dudes, and he makes them gentle and compassionate and loving. That's what the gospel does. The gospel works. The gospel changes our hearts. What about Peter? Was he always the most loving guy? Peter writes in his, his epistle, let's all show hospitality, let's love one another. No. You remember when someone uh, came up to Jesus uh, during the Passion Week, he cut his ear off with a knife. 
He's always packing. He's like, pa And now Peter's saying, love one another. What happened to James and John? And think about this now. James, John, Peter, all these disciples, we name hospitals after them. We name schools after them. We name cities after these disciples. These guys who wanted to torch Samaritans and cut people's ears off. Over a period of time, Jesus Christ radically changed their life, and now they're associated with compassion. They're associated with love. Do we name anything after Caesar, the great leader of their time? No. A salad? You're with me. <laughs> Little Caesars? A really bad haircut? There's nothing to brag about there. No. Why? Because they're known for love. So this is how I would define love based on this verse. Love is a passion that leads to action. We call Jesus' journey to the cross the passion of the Christ. And Jesus did not merely say he loved us. It wasn't a sentimental love. He acted. He literally died. God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if love is not acting, it's not love. Doesn't matter how much you say it's love. Love is a passion that leads to an action because love is cross-centered. So important that we get that. Finally, number six, family love involves practical generosity. It's practical. It does something. We see the passion there in verse 16. Now listen how John ends this section. But if if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And the answer is what? It doesn't. It doesn't. Because love is not sentimentalism, right? Sentimentalism is not gonna help one poor kid who needs help, one orphan, one lonely single mom. You know what's gonna help them? Doing something. Just feeling sorry for someone never helps them. What, what really helps them, verse 18, is this. Little children, he says, let's not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Because love always acts. It acts. It does something. Now, the way James says this in his letter is that we should be a doer of the word and not what? Just a hearer of the word. Like, in in the family, in the community of faith, it's like you have chores. You're in the family. You have responsibilities, right? And, And you're to serve. You're to use your gifts. You're to act. Like, if you come over to my house on a typical Saturday, and we have chore day at our house, and I line up all the kids, and I give them instructions, and I say, James, you mow the yard. Joshua, you clean up after our dog. Jana, you do the dishes. Angela, you do the laundry. And uh, Victoria, uh, you sweep. Okay? And I give them really good instructions, and I say, all right, go. And let's say I leave, and I come back about, I don't know, six hours later, and the yard's not mowed, I step in something in the yard, dishes aren't clean, laundry's not clean, we're gonna have a talk, aren't we? And let's just say I line up the kids and I say, kids, did you not hear what I told you? Oh yeah, Papa, we heard you. Oh, was it it clear, was my teaching clear? Oh, it was so clear. We've never heard you be so clear, Papa, it was just fantastic, really. I'm like, okay, so what did you do with my teaching? Well, and what if they said, well, you know what we decided to do, Papa? Uh, We decided to start a small group on how to mow the yard. (laughs) And we're going to form a a class on how to clean up after your pet. And we're going to start a blog 
about how to do the dishes. And we know the Greek word for laundry. I'm going to talk to my kids, aren't I? I'm going to say to them, listen, the goal of my instruction is not for you to talk about my instruction. That's not love in word or talk, but deed in truth. The, the goal is for you to be a doer of the instruction and not just a hearer. And we have no shortage of blogs and conferences and groups. But what we have a shortage of in our generation is obedience. This has been called the information age, but this will not be called the application age. And you're the generation that's going to change that. And we're not just going to love in word and talk. We're not just going to have a lot of conferences about how we ought to love. We're actually going to go love a human being. We're not just going to have a small group to talk about how to serve the poor and the needy. We're actually going to go and do it. That's what James says, or John and James actually says, this is what's involved in being a disciple. And we're not just loving in word and talk, but deed and truth. Now, to do that, one of the things that you have to kill is sensationalism. That is, many people are attracted to that which is sensational, and practically loving and serving people doesn't always look remarkable. You're not going to get on TV. You're going to meet no disappearing chihuahuas and dancing hobbits. It's just going to be caring for a lonely person. And I want to tell you that Jesus Christ pays attention to that. Nothing done in Jesus' name is insignificant. It gets his attention, though it may not get the world's attention. And that is what it looks like to live out 1 John 3, 11 to 18. Let's be known for loving one another. Let that love be cross-centered, sacrificial. Let's not be surprised when we love one another that the world hates us. Let's not be surprised that it's challenging to love one another because there's an evil one. And let's be a people who are marked by generosity, practical acts of compassion. And so you're going to have a chance, even today probably, to put this on display. So may the Lord, who empowers this, by the way, Jesus has not just given us the example of it, he's also given us the power to do it. May we go out from here and be known for being these kinds of people. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love that you've displayed toward us. <clears throat> thank you for Christ Jesus. He's given us the ultimate example of loving one another, not only washing feet, but ultimately going to the cross for us, showing us what it looks like to pour out his life, to be a sacrifice, to change us, to come to us in our need. We're grateful today that we have not only Jesus' example of love, but also his power to love. He's given us the Holy Spirit, producing in us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We need these virtues if we're going to love people. We need to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And so I pray that you would help us to walk in holiness, that you would sanctify us in your truth, that we would get into your word daily, regularly, and as a result of being with you, we would be like you to others around us. Be pleased, we pray, with our lives. We give it to you afresh this morning. We offer you our praise. You're good and worthy of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.